Welcome to Dream Up by Burdock, a weekly podcast show connecting you with inspiring Asian American creatives by exploring what they do and the paths that got them there. This is Dream Up. Hi, this is Peter Ashley. Today we have a special episode in collaboration with 88 Rising for the Asia Rising Together charity concert. I'll be speaking with the poet, novelist, and professor Ocean Vuong. Ocean is the author of the New York Times bestselling novel, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, and the critically acclaimed poetry collection, Night Sky with Exit Wounds. Hi, Ocean. How are you? Good. Good, Peter. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, it's, a, it's a deep honor. I'm really glad to be here. Just for our listeners, can you just introduce yourself, tell us who you are and what you do? I'm a poet, novelist, and professor. And uh, my name is Ocean Vuong, and I try to make sense of the world through the imagination um, and language, essentially. And can you describe what your typical day-to-day looks like? Uh, I Ideally, I like to be an early riser, but it never happens. Um, so in my head, that's still a goal. I, I, one day, I like to be one of those artists that wakes up at four, brews a cup of coffee, looks out into the blueing world, and has to sort of epiphany. It's never happened. I've been trying to do it for 10 years. Um, what really happens is I wake up at around 11 and I, I desperately try to get some kind of coffee. And then I just lay there and try to, you know, tend to uh, my work and, you know, questions that haunt me. Um, it's actually like a really, I don't know if it's like a great um, like method. I don't think it's healthy. You know, I, I sleep like at three or four um, when I'm working and and then I wake up late and I think everything kind of falls away um, and I just kind of hold, I'm in the world of the novel um, in, or the poem, you know, and I think a lot of writers talk about this where you, you're really making a portal and then you go into it and then you're lost. And then, then you, when you finally come back to this world, it's a mess, you know, so I don't know if it's like the the best lifestyle um but i managed to make it work really well uh for me and um you know i'm still figuring it out i think there's a better version of how to produce um and i hope to find it one day and can you take us on a journey of your career path and how you got started my career path i started as um well i started at a community college um i just went there to try out learning I come from a family of factory and nail salon workers in New England. So education was not really, it's not even, it's not like it wasn't valued. It was just not even something people understood. Um, My mother said, hey, if you can work at McDonald's, um, that'd be great. That's a a salary. And I I thought that would be great too. Um, So, but, you know, community college was free. In fact, they even paid me with the Pell Grants. So I said, wow, two grand to go to school? Let's give it a shot. And, uh, and then I went to, um, to uh, study marketing in New York um, at Pace University. And then I dropped out in about three weeks. Um, so I was, I was a failed, you know, it was like the typical Asian American story of trying to make, uh, get a career to make money and take care of my family. And then be an artist. I kind of deferred my artistic ambitions, um, but I couldn't fake it. You know, I'm a bad faker. I'm a bad actor. Everybody was going to class 
with suits and they're going off to internships at Chase and, you know, Goldman Sachs and all these firms. And I just, I just felt like I was dying. And, and one day I just walked out. I walked out. I was the Pace University is right next to the Brooklyn Bridge. You can actually see the Brooklyn Bridge um, from class. And one day I just I never signed out of Pace. <laughs> I don't know how I don't know what that means. Um, I just walked out. And I never went back. I crossed the Brooklyn Bridge and I thought about you know Walt Whitman who wrote about the bridge. And I just thought like what the heck? I'm I already failed. Like oh my, I'm the I'm I'm the only one to go to college in my family. The only one to read and write. And within months, I failed, like everything my, my family has done, you know, everything they've sacrificed. So I was like, okay, if I'm already a failure, I might as well fail while doing what I love. And so I started to couch surf on friends, uh, couches and homes and kitchens and closets while reading in the back of bars, reading my work in the back of bars. And, you know, and then I also started to take workshops in the back of these bars. What happened is, you know, though people would run workshops. Anybody who would, has anything to teach, you know, it's very community oriented. And people, folks would hold community workshops in the back of these bars and then read in the open mic. And I did that for a while. And someone said, you know, you might as well get a degree in, in literature. And so I went to Brooklyn College um, and I got my degree in 19th century American literature. And, uh, you know, after that, I just... I was able to wave this piece of paper in front of my mother and say, look, Ma, I could have said it was a medical degree. She wouldn't even know or care, <laughs> you know? So as long as it was something. And I said, here it is. It's, it's, uh, it's a piece of paper. I did it. And then I, you know, immediately had no money, <laughs> you know, have no prospects. So I went home to Connecticut and started writing in her basement. And, and that led to um, my first collection of poems, My Sky with Exit Ones. And when you were at Pace, was there one specific event or something that caused you to walk out that day that triggered it? Actually, there was. There was this one day, we're beginning at this unit, and there was a huge, it was a big hall, you know, one of those lecture halls, and it was a, a projector. Uh, and it was kind of like a, it was supposed to be a fun image to kind of get everyone like, you know, it's like a breaking the ice for the class. And it was a baby with stickers of corporations on it like a, an actual baby and i think it was just like some like clip art or getty images that they grabbed but it's like a laughing baby and it was just like cnn you know <laughs> i was just like you know ford and i was just like oh my god i'm like holy crap that's that's what i'm doing i'm gonna go out there and learn how to be a liar for these corporations and i thought you know what, if I'm going to lie, I might as well lie for myself and, and, and do it in my books, do it in my poetry, in my fiction. If I'm going to lie, I might as well have fun while doing it. I'm not going to lie for, you know, some company. So I just said, you know, forget this. I'm, I'm walking out. And I literally just took the elevator down and I never, I never came back. I don't know. You know, I, I guess they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> And what was the process of getting that first book published? What you would see as a milestone of success in your career? It took eight years to write. You know, I think a lot of folks, a lot of makers, you know, especially in the age of Instagram and, and the internet, um, they want everything fast. A lot of 
a lot of artists wants immediate gratification. And I think that's a, it's a slippery slope, but also a dangerous slope. You know, it, it took more than a decade to really work on these poems and go back and revisit them and redraft them. I think it's so important, you know, when you're the the art of revision is the art of giving more versions of yourself to one thing. Right. And so when you're revising a poem or a novel or a song, there's more oceans working on that. Why would you just want one ocean? You should have you should want 20 or 30 or 40 or 100. And so I learned to give more of myself to my work without exhausting myself, right? And, and so that took eight years to do. And, you know, I wouldn't um, have done it any other way. Um, and, you know, in poetry, it's very small. There's no big contracts. You don't really, like, make it overnight, you know? Um, so I sent my book to a publisher that I like. Um, it was an open reading period. And I thought they lost it. It took, like, a year. And they got back to me one day. They called me. I thought it was a debt collector because it was just, you know, I was like, should I, should I, this going to be a, a, a bottomless pit of, you know, or should I, so I said, oh, I'll take a gamble. It's from, it's from Seattle. You know, I said, right. I haven't had any debt collectors from Seattle yet. So let's see. I picked it up and the editor said, we love to publish you. And I was on the train in Queens above ground and I got off because it was about to go underground. So I hopped off at the next stop and I I just kept saying, yes, yes. And I started crying you know, underneath this poster of the Expendables movie. You know, it was so surreal. It was just like, you know, it was, you know, Sylvester Stallone with these guns and I'm underneath like sobbing. <laughs> and folks were like stopping. Oh my God, you know. And they're saying, All right, can we help you? I said, no, everything's perfect. You know, and it's like, it's another crazy New Yorker. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> um, and and that was it, you know, and then you get like $500 advance and then, and then it went off. But, you know, the moment I think that really it took off was, was actually a, a legendary Asian American critic saw my book, you know, the press sent it to uh, a lot of um, media outlets and, you know, of course the New York Times, but New York Times passed on it. Um, they just probably saw it was like a, another debut from a nobody. So, you know, it's not a lot of space um, in the New York Times book review. So they, they passed on it. Um, so then the book came out and it was fine. But about a month later, uh, Michiko Kakutuni, this, this, you know, chief critic of the New York Times for many years, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist, saw a segment uh, from PBS News that I was a part of. And uh, she said, uh, to my publisher, send me that book. And they said, we already did. And he said, well, send me, I didn't get it, send another one. And then she reviewed it and she gave this very generous, careful, and really respectful um, review in the New York Times, you know, comparing me, you know, not to other, just to other Asian American writers, but to Gerard Maley Hopkins and Emily Dickinson with such reverence and care. And that was what really, changed overnight. That was like the overnight thing when Michiko Kagutani gave the New York Times rave. Um, and I always talk about that because often we often think like, you know, so much of media and art is run by white folks. But, you know, so many times in my life, it was editors of color, readers of color, artists of color who really recognized what I was doing in a substantial way and 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 saw that. And so you know, it, it's the myth is not everything depends 
um, on whiteness. Like our communities are finally being in the position to take care of each other and recognize each other. Um, it could be better. But in my case, you know, I, I'm so proud that that was kind of how my career really started by an Asian American woman saying, I see you. I know what you're doing. That was so, so important. And I'll never forget that. Right. And it's interesting that you say that, you know, they spoke of you as a writer, not just as like an Asian writer, which I find happens a lot in a lot of creative fields or, you know, I've heard of fashion designers saying that they constantly get lumped in with other fashion designers, even though their works have nothing to do with each other other than their personal ethnicity. Yeah. So I, th- yeah. I think that's quite, yeah, it's interesting to see the parallels across all the creative fields that we kind of get pigeonholed into being like an Asian writer, an Asian artist, you know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And that's the nature of uh, a system that commodifies you know, expression commodifies creativity. And it's paradoxical because creativity is about expanding borders, right? It's about saying that, you know, this is why I have a lot of trouble with the word representation because representation assumes that something is finite and finished, right? That an Asian American identity is is calcified and now has a representative, right? But you can't represent something that's constantly changing. Right. So I prefer the term Asian American presence because we can have presence both on the screen and off the screen. We can have presence in editorial positions, executive positions. Whereas if we only focus on representation, then we only focus on the optics. And optics are easy to achieve and quite cheap to achieve. You can always publish a book, let it go out, and then it'll fade away in one season. But if the editors are still predominantly white, then the vision is still the same, only the color has changed, right? And so I think this is a, a structural issue that I hope you know we can start to dismantle and reinvent. And that's why what Eighty Eight Rising is doing is so important. You know, it's, it's just it's this collective that has taken control of how Asian bodies are seen, how we make, and how we articulate our values to each other. Right. So just on that note, in what other ways would you say your Asian identity has shaped your creative process or journey? I can't point to any one thing. You know, um, I have to say all of it. It, It's it's everything. If I write the word the, T-H-E, if I write just the word the on the page, that the, that one, that specific the, comes through an Asian American experience. Even the word the, right? So on one hand, it's nothing to be concerned over, right? On another hand, it's inescapable, right? So knowing that, knowing that everything that comes out of my hand, the language that comes out of me, comes through an Asian American filter and vessel, um, I'm free to kind of do whatever I want. Because my the will be different from everyone else's the, right? And if, if even I were to write about Mars, if I were to write science fiction, you could be able to read that, that otherworldly text and see an Asian American experience in it. And so I don't get too preoccupied with, you know, how Asian am I or how 
uh, how you know un-Asian am I? Because when you get down to those semantics, you actually start to shackle yourself into uh, with other people's vision of who you are. But if you just sit down and say, whatever I do, if I make one beat, one sound, one word, even the word the, and that's an Asian American word, then it's already taken care of. You're not going to be able to hide from it. I can't wake up one day and say, guess what, guys? I'm white writer. Right. right. So to me, it's a foregone conclusion. And that the worry of, over it is, you know, I prefer to have others worry over that. What I'm interested in is that where does that experience propel me? Where does the the take me? The what? Right. The is an article that leads to somewhere else. The same thing with Asian American identity. It's already here. I can't escape it. I don't want to escape. Right. If I if I pass away and come back, as I believe I do as a as a Buddhist, I want to be Asian American again. I don't I don't ever want to stop. Um, so I want the the to be the first step towards something else. And I think it would be helpful if Asian American writers and makers ask ourselves that question: Where where are we headed? Where do you want to go? Not who you are. You are who you are. Right. We know who we are. We wake up every day. We go to sleep as Asian Americans. But the question is, where do we want to go? Where do we want to take this talent? That's when I'm getting really excited. It's like, that's what art making really is, is when you really head off the cliff, that cliff where no one's been before, and you got to trust that you have wings. That's so scary. But if you're prepared, if you prepared well, if you trust in your vision, you, you know, whatever your wings are made of, they'll take you, they'll take you enough. And that's what really excites me. Wow. That's super encouraging, even for myself to hear. And yeah, I, I think it's tough because you want to create for the sake of creating. And unfortunately, you're just reminded every day, even within your craft making, that people want to put you in this box. And also, you know, we're almost treated like a monolith, even though yeah. we're all coming from so many different cultures and languages and backgrounds. It, it's constantly us in the context of America is that we're Asian American and, and, you know, here are the gatekeepers who control if we get published or um, we're able to create this or that. But I always feel quite restricted, but I think, um, you know, your words are quite encouraging and just focusing on being excited about what we can create outside of what we're expected to create. And articulating that is very important, right? I think so much of what you're describing is what I call a convicted, right? A convicted determination and a convicted resistance. Because when someone says, oh, here's the slot for you, right? That even if they hire you, even if they say yes to you, that yes comes with an asterisk. Right. Yes, but in this little slot, please. And many of our elders had no choice. The makers that came before us in the 70s, 80s, 60s, they just said, oh, my God, you're giving me a slot. Thank you. I'll go in because otherwise that's it. Now, I think it's important when they say, here's the slot. I say, I don't want to go in there. And be prepared to say why. Right. Articulating you know, the thought that you've put in to why you refuse something. Having a charged and deeply convicted no 
is so important. You have to know how to say no to what fails you, even no to their false vision of you in order to say yes for yourself. Oftentimes, it's just out of ignorance, right? You might just have to say, you thought that was the only slot I could go into, but I'm telling you that I can go anywhere. And from my experience, oftentimes, if you articulate it with conviction and have a complex understanding of it yourself, someone else who really trusts you would say, oh, wow, okay, do it. It shouldn't have to be that way, right? Often, you know, white makers get to just kind of do go, right? I'll go there and then people say, wow, brilliant, imaginative. But this is where we are. Hopefully one day we'll get there. But for now, it's important to be be prepared to say no to that. Here's what I want to do. And here's why all of us will benefit from my freedom. It's sad that we have to have a TED talk to validate yourself, but you're going to have to be prepared to do these these talks in meetings, editorial meetings, interviews, job interviews, you know, even with clients uh, again and again. Um, but once you have it, I think it's 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 very important to set that up because it opens the freedom for yourself to be an artist on your terms. And that's very important because if you don't do that, then we lose you. We don't, we don't get the whole Peter Lee. He's lost before he's even in the room, before he's began the project, before the, a single shot the camera is taken, right? Before a single word for myself. Um, so the goal is to not lose you and to not lose yourself. In order to do that, you have to know how to say no. I think you've kind of answered this in a different way, but from a more pragmatic standpoint to our young listeners. Can you offer any tips or advice for someone wanting to pursue a similar career as yours? If it stops giving you joy, give yourself permission to stop. That's very important. I think so much of advice and so much of career planning is always about goals, right? This obsession with chasing. And I think it's just as important to give yourself permission to stop. Only when you know how to stop, do you know how to go on. And there's been times in the span of the 12 years that I've been working that I thought, I think I'm not a writer. And I stopped. Three months at a time, six months, one time only almost a year. And I just did other things. I just said, maybe I'm, maybe this is it, not for me. But I learned that when I stepped away, something called me back, and it was the love of language. You know, when you get to step away, you take off a lot of pressure. You take off building the CV, getting a contract, having a career. And when you take those things out of the picture, you're left with the original joy of discovering this art. That, 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 that younger version of yourself that found this art that you're doing before you knew what a career was, before you knew what the New Yorker was or the Paris Review, Penguin Random House, before you knew what all those things were. You know, I read a poem in a book and I said, oh my goodness, how do I do this magic? I'll do anything to learn how to do this magic. I'll do whatever it takes, right? So when you take 
that off, you might rediscover that joy. And that joy is so powerful. It, it, it takes us to the ultimate destination. It takes us through our whole careers. And, and so it's important, I think, that when it stops giving you joy, whatever your vocation is, give yourself permission to stop, even momentarily, even a temporary stop. But if it's if it's okay to turn to turn in a different direction altogether. It's not it's not always about, you know, what I hate is when people just say, like, keep going, you can do anything you want if you dream about it. It's all lies, right? People who say that aren't your friends. They just want they're just afraid to make you feel bad because they don't want to be uncomfortable. But you know, it, it's it's a myth. Like, you know, don't don't egg somebody on when what they're doing is destroying them. Because then they'll end up 50 and miserable with no prospects. And guess what? Those friends that were cheering, they're gone, right? So give yourself permission to stop if you're not happy. And what was it that kept bringing you back in your moments of pauses? I think my just obsession with language. You know, I, I think it's a, it might be of a disease. I don't have, I can't, I don't have any other skills. I can't drive. I can't do math. I can't like I have I can't really like fill out forms. I, I my brain is just so limited um, that I just start language just starts coming. And even if I when I said I'm not a writer anymore, all of a sudden I said, oh wow, a beautiful image. You know, I'm start making poems. So I, I don't really have. I mean, it's a choice, right? You know, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm like it's like some kind of like mythical thing, but like I couldn't really get away with it, and I wasn't good at anything else. You know, I was a terrible student. I was a college dropout. If I didn't have this, I don't know, I would just be like, I think I would just be like, I don't know, like one of those, a lot of my relatives have mental illness and they they kind of just, you know, uh, go into various obsessions, um, collecting cans, rocks, like uh, that happens a lot in my family. And I think I'm actually not that far from them. Like I just collect words, right? And I think I just being able to make a life out of it, but I think what I'm experiencing is more a condition rather than a true talent, which is fine. Well, as we're celebrating API Heritage Month, what are some ways we could support and uplift one another as Asian creatives? Give each other permission to, to surprise ourselves. Truly don't judge, you know, something. It's so power. It's a powerful thing not to judge something. It's hard too. I think looking at other Asian makers and just allowing them to be, and, and don't say, is that good or bad? Forget about that binary of good or bad, right? But say, what is happening? What am I seeing? Describe to yourself what you're experiencing. That's such a more rich, richful way of, of engaging with another artist. And I think if more, more folks in our community can just look at each other and say, why and how, rather than yes or no, uh, good or bad. That would be so, so wonderful. Yeah. Ocean, thank you so much. This is so educational and inspiring. And, you know, I honestly feel like I'm going to have to listen to this a couple more times, just even for myself and thinking about my craft as well. So thank you again for your time. Really appreciate you. Deep honor and best of luck. And, and I hope to see you again soon. You too. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you to Mark Redito for the music. 
Please support us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. And join us next week on Dream Up.